So welcome to Element. If you are new, this is not normally a one-man show. But Sean's gone, so whatever. I like doing this sometimes. It's kind of fun. If you are new and you don't own a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. You can have one. If you do not own one, if you forgot one this morning, you can use one. There's also sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. So if you need some notes on what we do this morning, you can pick those up, read through it, and take it home. Next weekend is our Labor Day barbecue, but it's on Sunday, so it's not actually on Labor Day. It's like our Labor Day Eve barbecue. We should call it Labor Day Eve barbecue. So we're going to have maps for you next week. If you normally come to a Sunday night service, there is no Sunday night service next week because of the barbecue. We want everybody to go and not feel like you have to leave real quick to go anywhere. We want you to hang out all day. We're going to do some kickball, not kickboxing. Uh, this kids' playground thing, probably some softball, all kinds of fun stuff. And here's the really important part, okay? A through M, side dishes, blah, blah. N through Z, important. You are the most important people in the room right now. Desserts, this is your job. Don't forget, this is very Cookies. High-fiber cookies. Low fat, get cookies, things like that. So, so bring, uh, bring something to drink. We'll provide hamburgers and hot dogs and stuff like that. And you guys, N through Z desserts. And if you're an A through M and, and you decide you want to bring a dessert with you anyway, that's okay. We're, we're good with that. Okay, I've got one more announcement for you. If you have a smartphone, an iPhone or anything in or you know, something like BlackBerry, uh, Droid, something like that, you can download what are called applications, apps. Now, there's an app that's available for all these phones, and it's called Uversion. And it comes up, looks like Holy Bible. It has a ton of different versions on it. And what you can do is there's a place on it that says Live. You've got to just sign up for the Live account. It's all free. And if you do this, it'll, it'll find you by where you're at. If it doesn't, you can type in the zip code, 93458, and it comes up. You can hit Esther Chapter 8, which is this morning. And it brings up all the sermon notes that are here, all the verses, and you can actually go through it with us. Okay? So just letting you know, we are technologically savvy. I even know how to work it. Therefore, it can't be too difficult. So there you go. Awesome, right? You version. Totally free, and literally you get like 20 different versions of the Bible. It's awesome. I'm going to put my phone on vibrate right now, because... That's how it works. All right. I want you to stand with me for reading the God's Word. This is Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And it says, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would make us a people who follow you in such a way that sin does not control us and that we are a people who understand the mission that you have placed us upon and that we live that mission in our lives so that you are honored by all that we do. Amen. Have a seat. So we are going through the book of Esther. This is week 12. We've got three weeks after this, and then we are done and moving on. Now, we spoke about a, a bunch of different things during the book of Esther, but if you, as you go through all this, everything really comes down to this whole idea of God's providence, God's care for His people. This overshadows everything throughout the book. And what is amazing to me, that even though God is a providential God, He is in control of everything, God still uses people in that providence. We call this mission. Mission. At Element, what we just think as ourselves of as a missional church. 
We believe that everybody in this room is on mission. If you call yourself a believer, you are a minister of the gospel of Christ. It is not my job or the elder's job or the deacon's job. It's all of our job to be ministers where we are. You are in your job, your neighborhood, your home, your family for a reason. We believe God has placed you there. We believe that no one understands those places where you are better than you. And so you are a missionary wherever you are. Missionaries are not just people that go overseas and live in the dirt and eat bugs. Missionaries are also you. And we believe that God's vision for Element is for us to help equip you to become the best missionaries possible. We are all on mission. And we believe that's the point and purpose of why God actually makes churches, to equip people for the works of ministry. You are the major ministers of the gospel. Now, this whole idea of mission, we love the idea of mission. you got movies like Mission Impossible. Monty Python has, you know, what is your quest? It's like, what's your mission? That, that's the mission. Frodo in Lord of the Rings, he's got to get rid of, that's, that's his mission. He's, he's got a quest. And all of us have been given a mission. But then what actually comes along to us so easily, this whole idea of non-mission, this idea of following ourselves and not following who God calls us to be. If you, if you watch the Lord of the Rings, Frodo could have kept the ring. Uh, Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible, he could have kept the money. On a non-movie level, every dad could drink beer and watch sports all day rather than raise their kids. Every mom could stick a kid in front of a TV with a video rather than raise them. You could decide to stay home and sleep and, and watch the game in the morning rather than come and worship God communally together. For every mission that we have, there is like this other mission that calls to us that wants to pull us away. Real mission is hard. It is usually difficult. An easy mission is usually just easy. And I will tell you, at the end of your life, if you only seek yourself and your easy mission, you will look back on your life and be like, man, I wish I did things differently. Because true mission, God's mission, is what we are created for. The book of Esther is, among other things, a book of mission and how it is woven into the great mission and providence of God. So what I'm going to do this morning is, if you haven't been here, good for you. If you have, sorry. We're going to go over Esther very slowly from where we started to where we end up today, then read the section in chapter 8 where we are today, and then pull it all together. But I want to go over this slowly so you understand this idea of mission throughout the book. In chapter 1, King Xerxes is having a party. In this point in King Xerxes' life, his kingdom goes from Asia Minor all the way to Africa and northern parts of India. He is not an admirable character. He is an ostentatious king who wants to show off his greatness, but he has no inner strength of character whatsoever. He constantly needs his friends to make up his mind for him. So Esther opens up with a 180-day banquet, a 180-day party. It's like, woo, six months, woo, you and me. At the end of this party, he throws another seven-day party called a potos, which is a drinking party for all the guys who are still there to come out and to have this party. They, they drank wine, Jewish commentaries say, by the flagons. This is like without restraint, no designated drivers. No, like, your camel's like in the wall because you can't drive the thing. I, it's kind of funny, it has no, nothing to do with my message at all, but I got pulled over at this sobriety checkpoint yesterday. I had like three people go, hey, why at the sobriety checkpoint pulled over? And you know why? I didn't have my driver's license on me. I went and I, my wife and I do a wedding yesterday. I ran out of my house, left everything on the coffee table, got a license. No, sir. Do you have uh, anything that says who you are? No, sir. I'm sorry. Pull over. I'm like, great. So I got whatever. So the, n no designated drivers. You're driving your donkey home just all crazy. On the seventh day, Esther 1.10, it says, When the king was merry with wine, 
He sends for Queen Vashti. He's been showing off his possessions and all that he owns during this entire party. Now he wants to show off his ultimate possession. Now, he didn't want to bring her in to show off her brains. She wasn't going to be like, this is how you do math, integers. She didn't show up and say, hey, you know, the, the, she, let me, let's talk about her personality. She wasn't going to talk issues of state or, or politics. Vashti came, Esther 111, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. It actually tells you that King Xerxes told her to come wearing her royal crown, meaning only her royal crown. So she's supposed to come naked in front of all these people so Xerxes can go, look it. Isn't my wife hot? She's better looking than yours. And an extraordinary thing happens in this. She says, no. I'm going to stay here and wash my hair with all my girlfriends. That's what I'm going to do. And you would think that a king, a guy at some point, would realize you put your wife in an awkward position by asking her to do this. But you'd be wrong. Esther 1.12 says, Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, part of a king's mission is to govern with grace and fairness. Scripture says that kings are to govern with justice and righteousness. And by Vashti refusing to do this, you realize that Xerxes is seeking his own mission. It is not God's mission for a king. He wants to impress a nation. He looks weak when his wife says no. He can't control the, uh, the queen. So he makes this a matter of state. He's like, so guys, what am I going to do? I asked my wife to come and do this, and she won't do it. I can't do a thing with her. What am I supposed to do? Xerxes isn't concerned with justice. He wants to just be in control. And so Xerxes' czars, for better lack of a better word, they advise him to pass an edict that Vashti can no longer go before the king, which you and I would think, that's not so bad. You know, he's crazy anyway. It literally means she probably got killed because of this. And so he wants to get a new queen. So Xerxes likes this idea. Yeah, let's get rid of her. Let's, let's get me a new one. So he turns to his personal attendants, his high testosterone young men, and say, what do you think I should do? How should we go about it? So they give him ideas on what the new queen should look like and how to get one. Their number one idea, hold a Miss Persia contest. Go to all the 127 provinces, have them get the best-looking one, in all the, and have them send them here to your harem. Then we'll give them a year's worth of beauty treatments, and the one that you like the best can be your next queen. He's like, that's a great idea. My advisors are totally brilliant. Esther 2.4, it actually says, the girl who pleases the king, she would become the ultimate trophy wife. So Esther, she is a young Jewish girl. She's adopted. She's raised by her uncle Mordecai. She's made it through the prelims. She's one of the finalists selected to go before the king. And I think what is interesting about the book of Esther is it never tells you what Esther was doing before this point. It never tells you what dreams she had for her life. We do not know if she volunteered for the contest or if she was simply drafted. But whatever dreams, whatever goals she had for her life at this point had been interrupted. And she found herself placed... Well, she didn't know it at the moment, but on God's mission for her. She had no idea what her future would hold. I will tell you, neither do you or I. But we are called to be people on God's mission because God is faithful to us. So again, before girls turned the game and going to the king, they had 12 months of beauty treatments. This is six months of oil and myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. Mary Kay would be making a killing on this. Be like, yeah, everybody. All the princesses use Mary Kay. It would be kind of like that. Thank God liposuction, like silicone, wasn't invented yet, right? Because that'd just be like, oh boy. You know, th there's a lot of pressure for your first date. I mean, if you're not good enough after 12 months, you're probably not going to be good enough at all. You know, it's 12 months of prep time. Okay, so Esther wins the contest. She is named the next queen. Then the king throws another party. And if you and I didn't know the rest of the story or know anything about God's providence, you would think Esther's mission in life was simply to be arm candy for the most powerful man on earth. But God had something else for her. And God brings something hard into her life. Esther 4.14 says, For such a time as this, 
What happens is the, is the king's chief of staff, Haman, he'd been offended by Esther's uncle Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow in his presence or pay him honor. Now, Haman is a guy, he is obsessed, not with God's mission for him, but for his own mission. He wants power. A little tiny corner of rebellion in his life would not be overlooked. So he decides to get revenge against Mordecai by killing all the Jews in Persia. He bribes, he dupes the clueless king into decreeing this genocide of the Israelites. When Haman's treachery reaches the ears of Mordecai, he realizes there's only one person in the entire kingdom who could intervene and seek the king's favor to save all of Israel. And who was it? The beauty pageant winner. The girl who had just won, gone through 12 months of beauty treatments. That girl right there. God's plan for redemptive history and community was placed in the slender hands of a beauty queen named Esther. God reveals his mission to Esther, as he does so often to you and I, one, through his spirit, but also through the words of a wise and trusted friend. Mordecai comes to her and he says, you have got to go to the king. Now Esther, she is not trained for this at all. She had been taught that her value to the king is her face and her body. For 12 months, part of these beauty treatments is you're taught how to anticipate the king's every desire and please that desire. It is a capital offense, death, to go before the king unsummoned. And the king, at this point, hadn't even asked for Esther for a whole month. The honeymoon is over. The harem is full. He doesn't really care about her. Esther does not have a devoted husband. Now, Esther knows what happened to Queen Vashti. She's like, this could be suicide for me to go in front of the king. And then to take on Haman, because Haman is becoming the real power behind the throne. The queen wanted to ignore it, but not Mordecai. And he told Esther, you cannot settle for being wealthy and pampered and just being a beauty queen. That's not true mission. Her mission was to save her people. And so he speaks words that will echo in her mind throughout to her final day. Esther 4.14, Who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this? Because God, in his providence, had placed the fate of his people in her hands. Esther had not been brought to this point in her life for the sake of accumulating a great wardrobe, you know, a couple camels with a Mercedes symbol on the top and precious gems. She had not been brought to this point to be the most desirable woman in the kingdom. Safety, security, fame, attractiveness, those were not her mission. And it's not yours. Her mission was to be part of God's plan to redeem the world. And it is not an accident that she was where she was. That is providence and that is mission. Listen to me on this. Discovering what is needed to fulfill the meaning of your life is not the same thing as being successful. And it is never easy. Deep in our souls, we know that an easy mission is not what we were created for. We were created for something that God calls us to. Easy things never thrill us. No one ever went to see a movie called Mission Not So Difficult or Lord of the Guy Who Kept the Rings. You know, nobody goes sees those. So what happens is, is Esther asks to have three days. Three days. Have the Jews fast and pray for three days before she approaches the king. Esther 4.16 says, And when this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And then she responds with, I think, some of the best words in the book. She says, And if I perish... I perish. I think Esther finds strength that she did not even know she had. As I believe you and I have strength that you don't even know we have because God deems to give you his strength when you follow him. There's a story a few years ago about a, a, a Mattel plant, a toy plant, and they had G.I. Joes and Barbies in the same plant, and whoever was in charge of the voice boxes got them mixed up. And so, you know, imagine you're a little girl and you open up your Barbie and it's like, hit the ground hard, hard, hard. You're like, okay. <laughs> You know, you're a little boy and you open up G.I. Joe and it's all, let's shop till we drop. It's like, which, which one did I get? This is, this is kind of crazy. 
Well, I think Xerxes, I think, he married, I think he married a Barbie, but he ended up getting the G.I. Joe. Because Esther steps into this and she goes forward with it. The third day, she puts on a royal robe. She stands in the inner court. She's waiting for the king. I mean, imagine what is going through her mind as she waits life or death. She's scared. What, what's going to happen? The king sees Esther and he reaches out his golden scepter, an indication of favor that she would live. In Esther 5.3, it says, He asked, What is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Now, Esther knows this is the kind of thing a king says when he's in a good mood. If she really asked for half the kingdom, things would have gone completely different than they go in the rest of the book. This is like king talk for, hey, do you want to hold the remote control tonight? That's, that's what that is. And so Esther can't blurt out, spare my people, put down your chief of staff. So what she says is, I'm having a party. You and Haman should come. I'm doing it for you. Why don't you guys come to the party? And this is brilliant because the king has never turned down a party in his life. He loves to go. And he had such a good time at the party, he asked Esther again, what is your request? Let me know it, and I, and I will give it to you. So instead, she says, we'll come to a second party tomorrow. You and Haman, come. Esther is showing remarkable skill. Now, Haman, through all this, he's very excited because he's included, and Esther invited him to two different parties. In Esther 5.11, he goes home and he boasts to his wife and his friends about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him. But then he complains, all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Now, as an advisor to the king, Haman's, part of Haman's mission should have been to help the king win the favor of his people, to help him govern with righteousness and justice. But Haman goes the other way. And what he does, his mission for him becomes more wealth, more power, more recognition. Haman is a great example that our souls cannot be fed by ourselves. Self is never enough. It is never enough. The more you seek your own self-interest, the less satisfied you will be. Because that is not your mission. His wife advises him, we'll have a gallows built 75 feet high. Impale Mordecai on it because he's offensive to you. Esther 5.14, this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. That very same night, the king cannot sleep. He's wakey and groggy. He asks his servant, why don't you read to me? I guess when you're a king, you don't have to read yourself. You have somebody else to read you to sleep, so it's, it's kind of nice. And he has him read from the annals of the king, which is great. It's like, hey, read me that book about me, because I, I like that. And so they read him a story about how a man named Mordecai once saved his life. And when the king asked what recognition Mordecai had actually gotten for this good deed, his servant said Mordecai had never been honored. So at that very moment, Haman comes through the door, getting ready to ask the king to hang Mordecai on a gallows, hang Mordecai on a gallows, knowing nothing of the account the servant had just read to the king. And so the king preempts Haman with this question, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? So Haman thinks, oh, this has got to be me. I went to the party. The king really likes me. This is great. So Haman tells the king, the man should be dressed in royal robes, ride a royal horse, led by a royal official, and for good measure, the horse should wear a crown. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Hey, hey, it's me. Okay, so the king said, the man is Mordecai. Or the man, yeah, the man is Mordecai. Haman, you walk the horse to the city, and you proclaim how great and wonderful he is. So from here on out, it's downhill for Haman. Esther has another banquet, and she engages the king with courage and skill. She tells him that she and her people were going to be destroyed. The king's like, what? Esther 5, 7, 5, and 6, he, the king says, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman, and Haman ends up being hung on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. The very gallows. And in chapter 8, you see how this continues and comes to fruition. So we're going to just read through the text, and then we're going to pull it all together. 
Esther chapter 8, verse 1 starts like this. The same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So the king takes a signet ring that signifies the king's power, takes it away from Haman, gives it to Mordecai. Esther arranges all this. All of Haman's power now rests with Mordecai. He's the Lord of the Rings. Uh, verse 3. Whatever. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor, if he thinks it's the right thing, if he's pleased with me. She's very emotional now. Now she can actually show all this emotion that she has. And so uh, she's no longer reserved. The king's going to spare her. Let an order be... Uh, written, overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Now, this is something that's illegal. Xerxes can't do this. He can't just overwrite that last law. Verse 7, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, the Jews I have given his estate to Esther, and I have hanged him on the gallows. The king says, I did my part, I just killed a man. Dun, dun, dun all you rage fans. Now, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to use, and seal it with the king's signet ring from a little document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So a new decree gets written, one where the Jews can actually defend themselves against Haman's decree. Verse 9. Once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, which he now has, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, which again is the same month they are supposed to be attacked. A copy of this text of the edict was to be issued its law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality that the Jews be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's present wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and in every city. Wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now, I don't know if you can see this, through all of what we've talked about this morning, but God's care of His people. And yet how He intends His people to live on mission and be part of His mission. Everyone would have thought everything was lost. When you get to the point when Haman is the, the second most powerful man in the kingdom, he writes the edict where everybody's supposed to die of, of Hebrew nationality. It's a perfect time to chuck your faith because everything is against you. We're all going to die anyway. Over and over this seems to happen. But what does the story tell us about our life and ultimately God's mission? It is this. Like Esther, where you are today in your life is no accident. It is no accident. Who knows but that you have come to this position in your life 
for such a time as this. The job that you have, the home that you live in, the neighbors that you have, as crazy as they may be, the kids that you have, the spouse you have, the boss you have, if you're in school, the teachers that you have, you are there for a reason. Esther did not set out to be queen, but when she was on the throne, she had to decide between safety and wealth and power or her God-given mission of saving her people. I think we are also too often like Haman, and we use any position in our life to simply seek our own comfort, our own self-idolatry, our shallow pleasure. Sometimes we even become cruel in doing it. We are to be a people who seek to embrace generosity and righteousness, following Christ and His leading. Again, so what is your position, your job, your marriage, your, your tasks, of a, tasks of a parent, your, your friendships? Maybe your position includes, as I said, going to school. Maybe it involves your neighborhood, where you live. Maybe you volunteer in other places around town. Maybe you volunteer at Element. One thing is for sure. This is your time. It is not some other situation. It is not tomorrow. It is not yesterday. We are not to be a people who look and say, oh, as soon as I get this, then I can do that. Because we don't choose our time. God chooses that timing for you. You are where you are for a reason. And then lastly, Mordecai, through the story, he, he can be a nut sometimes. But if Esther had not had Mordecai, she maybe not have ever understood her mission. This is one of the reasons we believe small groups are very important. We believe all of you should be connected with other believers that help spur you on to what God calls you in your life. Who do you have in your life who will help you identify what God is calling you to do? Who loves you enough to challenge you in your life when you want to shrink back? Who does that for you? What I think is amazing about all of this is that this is something Jesus faced as well. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. For Jesus, he has this mission. God on the earth, redemption for all mankind, being the Messiah. But every time a temptation came up to him, it was do this without suffering. Do it the easy way. F.F. Bruce, New Testament scholar, writes this. Time and again, the temptation came to him from many directions to choose some less costly way of fulfilling that calling other than the way of suffering and death. But he resisted it to the end and set his face steadfastly to accomplish the purpose for which God had come into the world. In Matthew chapter 4, he's in the desert. Satan shows up and he tempts Jesus. Hey, make your mission easy. You can do it without comfort. You can do it without pain. God's angels will lift you up. You can even do it without opposition. Bow down to me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, I've got to suffer and die. Peter's like, no, 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 no. We've got plan B. We don't need yours. We'll do it a different way. It'll be a lot easier than that. You know what? Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Ouch. Mark chapter 4, verse 36, you're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is wrestling with this. He prays to the Father, take this cup from me. And yet Jesus goes to the cross. He dies, raised from the dead to bring salvation and redemption to all mankind. That God would come in the flesh and allow himself to be killed so that his plan and his mission would be accomplished. Let you know how hard your mission could be at times. But God is and was willing to walk through your mission with you. He gave you the strength to make sure you can live the life he calls you to live in his strength and his grace. Esther reminds us that there is a law that is unalterable, that there is a will that cannot be turned. It is not the law of King Xerxes and the Medes and the Persians. I mean, think about all this. 
How is it that of all the women in the empire, a Jewish girl named Esther becomes queen? How is it that of all the people in the empire, Mordecai is the one who saves the king from assassination plot? How is it that the king should have insomnia on the very night that Haman had built a gallows for Mordecai? How is it that of all the stories that are read to the king when he can't sleep that night, it's the one of the king of Mordecai saving the king's life? How is it that Haman, the scheming murderer, becomes the victim of his own schemes and Mordecai, the intended victim, becomes his replacement in government? Even in exile, God is present. Even when everything seems lost in your life, especially when everything seems lost, God is present. He's present. Uh, even, even though God in Esther is many times unseen, His purpose is certain and He is always with her, as Jesus is always with you and I. We are called to mission as a people. The church is not a building. It is the people that come into that building. You are the church. You are called to live on mission. And the way you live that, you live that in your home, then that extends to your neighborhood, and that extends to your community, and that extends to your city, and that extends to your county, and extends to your state and your country, and eventually the whole world. That is how mission gets done. And that is how you and I are supposed to live, on God's mission. This morning, we invite you to communion because communion is a place that we remember mission. You take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, which reminds of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because he came and lived mission, and he gives us a strength here to be redeemed. And we go out and we live his mission. He rises from the dead to give us new life so we can live and walk in that mission. The band's going to come up. We're going to do a couple songs. And as we do these songs, you take a few moments, sing, worship who God is, refocus your life, and start to ask God, God, mission where why am i where i am what in my life do i need to surrender to you so i can live on mission there'll be some deacons and elders in the back and if you need prayer they would love to pray with you if you've forgotten what mission is or what it even means they would love to pray with you after service if you feel uncomfortable going to the back of the hallway during music they'll be hanging out up here you just walk up and talk to them if you want to we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. And we're going to worship God through fellowship. There's food and stuff in the back where you guys can connect to each other. Again, we were not meant to do this alone. There is strength in community. Community is not God, but God does give us community to live within so we can help each other live on mission. God's mission is amazing. It is amazing. And I hope that you, this morning, will just take a step and say, I'm not going to live the easy mission. I'm not going to live for me. I will live for the mission that God calls me to. Eric's going to come and pray for us because i got to pull out the mic and do all this stuff because Sean's not here. If you listen to the podcast, Sean, see what you're doing. Make everything uncomfortable. <laughs> live on mission. Live on mission. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us this morning. We know it's not an accident that we're here and that we're hearing your words and your message. Father, I pray that uh, you would open up the eyes of our hearts and minds to be aware and to see what your purpose and your plan is for each one of us, Lord. Help us to stay focused, Lord, on what you would have us to do in each of our specific circumstances, Lord, in our home and in our jobs, Father, in the church and everywhere we go. Lord, may we rise to the mission that you've called each one of us to. And may we experience, Father, the joy 
that comes from walking in your spirit and doing what you have called us to do. So we ask for your strength. We ask for your power. We ask for your leading and your guidance. And we give you thanks for your faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.